Section 9 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Stella by Anna Koromawit Ritchie. Chapter 9. Faithful Mattie, without communicating her alarm to Miss Rosenveld, watched without Stella's door that livelong night. She could hear the young girl tossing restlessly upon her pillow, and now and then muttering unintelligible words. Poor Dita, poor Perdita, were the only distinct sounds that reached Mattie's ear. Towards morning there was an interval of perfect stillness. She's fallen asleep at last. Thank heaven, thought the distressed watcher. And then she stole with light tread to her own room, to lay down to rest. It seemed to her that she could not have slept more than a few moments when she was awakened by a touch. Stella stood beside her. Is it too early to go yet, Mattie? No, it cannot be too early. They cannot have slept through this fearful night. To go where, Miss Stella, dear? How ill you look. You're as white as a sheet, and your eyes have grown twice their size in the night. Don't don't look so you frighten me sorely get up then quickly and let us go go where to perdita at this hour miss stella why mattie what is the use of arguing with me you know i am headstrong i don't heed remonstrances i can't heed them i wish i could but i was never taught in the days when childhood's plastic mind may be shaped at will it's too late now Affliction is the only tutor whose lessons I shall ever heed. Go back to bed, dear, for a little while. No, do you get up. I must see those wretched children. I shall never rest until I do. You know where they live, for you went with the last piece of lace. It's quite a long walk for you. A couple of miles, at least. They live quite in the suburbs. The more the reason that you should make haste. We need not return home. I can go from there to the theatre. But breakfast? I can't eat. If you can, you may go back while I am at the theatre. Make haste! Mattie was ready in a few minutes. Stella left a hasty line to explain her absence to Mrs. Rosenvelt, and then set out. Stella took no notice of the distance they walked, and Mattie's occasional remarks were unheeded. This is the place, said the latter, stopping before a very humble tenement, the door of which stood open. Pedita's family lodge upstairs. They entered the close, untidy dwelling and ascended to the second story. A low, continuous moaning told in which room the mourner lamented. Stella's repeated knocks were unanswered. Though the plaintive sound still reached her ears, she lifted the latch softly, and they entered. The body of the deceased lay on a mattress in the center of the room. A sheet covered all but one arm. Floy was extended on the ground beside the corpse. The lifeless hand was clasped in his, and he lifted one cold finger after the other and let them drop again, wailing piteously as every one fell. How fondly he touched that very hand which turned the fatal key and locked the light of reason from his brain. He seemed to be struggling to comprehend that this hand was powerless now, powerless forever. Perdita sat at the head of the corpse. 
The tears that rolled slowly down her wan face glittered upon the shroud she was making. She was as still, as collected as ever. Her spirit had long been nurtured by adversity's sweet milk, patience. With her, each grief through meekness settled into rest. Inevitable affliction awakened no tumultuous sorrow. There was one other occupant of the chamber. In the furthest corner, sleeping in the chair, Stella recognized the homely features of the kind-hearted but eccentric Mrs. Pottle. It was not until Stella accosted Perdita that she looked up. "'I should not rest until I had seen you, Perdita.' Stella sat down at her side. "'I could not rest until I knew how you had borne this misfortune.' It does not break my heart, that cannot break, or it would have broken long ago. But of all, all the other trials, this is the most fearful. To die without one parting word, one blessing, to be hurried away so unprepared, and in his state, that is the most dreadful of all. Stella knew not what to answer. Her silence seemed to imply that there was no consolation that could be offered. And yet he could not have died, continued Perdita, as if she divined her thoughts, even by what people call an accident, if the fittest moment he could have ever known on earth had not yet arrived. The summons that comes unawares to a man is known to God. There are no accidents but of his permission. He overrules them all for good. He chooses the best hour for all of us, though it may not always seem so. No, my father could not have died, had not death been better for him than life. Do you believe that? asked Stella, doubtingly. I do. My mother taught it to me. It was the consolation she gave her children when she was dying. Something within me bears witness to its truth. Stella was silent again. Perdita fancied she was pondering upon ill reports that she had heard of the departed. "'Do not judge him harshly,' pleaded the devoted daughter. "'God will not judge him so, for he knows the heart and tempers all judgment with mercy. We are commanded, judge not, and do not, do not you, who knew nothing of his trials, his temptations, his sorrows, judge my poor father. Heaven forbid!' I only came to comfort you, Perdita. Your coming itself, your presence, comforts me. But my brother, Floy, Floy, will you not speak to Miss Rosenveld? But Floy raised not his face. He continued caressing the frozen hand and lifting one by one the stiffening fingers and letting them drop again, moaning as before. Mattie had taken the half-finished shroud out of Perdita's hand and went on with the sad task. The high-bred maiden and the humble ballet dancer sat side by side, conversing as sisters. Perdita's full heart unclosed. Her sorrows were poured freely forth. She pictured her mother's struggles in the theater, her wasting away, yet laboring to the last, her placid death, the husband's anguish, the envies and injustice through which he lost his position in the profession, the revolution in his temper, the mad infatuation which lured him to seek relief, oblivion, in the bowl. "'And have you no friends?' asked Stella. "'None. 
What time could we have to devote to friendships? We are always so busy. But that, pointing to the slumberer in the corner, that is one of the kindest friends we ever had, odd as she is. But how do you expect to live now? We can only go on as before. That good Mrs. Pottle has promised to raise a subscription in the theater for my father's... She seemed choked by the words, his funeral. Day after tomorrow it will be over. On Monday I will be forced to return to the theater. So soon? Yes, we are too poor, too miserably poor, to be able to give up even a week's salary. It was the same when my mother died. They gave me no time to recover from the shock. The public did not care. How could the manager? All goes on the same. My place in the ballet must be filled. If not by me, someone else is engaged, and I may be left to starve. Maddie had completed the shroud. This caused Stella to look at her watch. The hour for rehearsal had already arrived. She took a hurried leave, after kindly pressing Perdita's hand, and trying unsuccessfully to rouse the morning boy. Mr. Tennant, oblivious of his own example, remarked somewhat severely upon Miss Rosenfeld's want of punctuality. It was a bad sign, he said, in a novice. Such carelessness did not augur well for her future success. Come, come, there has been delay enough. Also be so good as to go on with the rehearsal. Make your calls, Fisk, said Mr. Finch in a displeased tone. Stella made no apology. The play was Hamlet. Mrs. Fairfax enacted the Queen Mother. She was the only person to whom the young actress that morning paid the slightest attention, whom she even deigned to answer. There is something very singular about Miss Rosenveld, whispered Fairfax to Belton. Do you not see her eyes glisten? For several days I have thought she was in a high fever. I am sure of it now. I dare say she is so excitable and has not been trained to govern her feelings. Will she be able to get through Ophelia tonight? That's the question. We have no substitute. Miss Doran can't sing a note. Stella will get through, I have no doubt, but I am troubled about her. She is such a lovely being, so full of soul, of genuine love for the art. She is everything that the stage needs most. Do give her some rest as soon as you can. She is overtasked. Don't crowd her brain with fresh study. You are right. As soon as Tennant's engagement is over, I will advise her to recruit for a week. No doubt she will stand the wear and tear of three nights more. The peculiarity of manner, which she had remarked at rehearsal, became even more apparent to Mrs. Fairfax at night. Stella's unwanted, meaningless burst of merriment as she wandered about behind the scenes even attracted the observation of the actors. During her brief professional career, she had hardly exchanged a word with any of the company, save Mrs. Fairfax, Perdita, and Fisk. Now she talked at random with everyone whom she met, sometimes jokingly, sometimes in a vein of biting sarcasm. In her restlessness, she entered the green room. Mr. Martin was extended on his customary bench. He was dressed as Ophelia's gravedigger. Stella abruptly accosted him with, Are you a Catholic? Yes and no, replied Mr. Martin, surprised and gratified at her desire to converse with him. 
A Catholic, but not a Roman Catholic. Why do you ask? Did you imagine that I was one? Yes, because you are accepting your purgatory here. What a glorious life you lead, with your dark enemy, the rheumatism, dragging you one way, and your tyrant, the public, forcing you the other. Glorious. How many years have you sang over your mock grave-digging to make the reflecting audience laugh? I believe I first played Ophelia's grave-digger about twenty years ago. Twenty years digging, and you haven't buried Ophelia yet, nor your own wits. Make an end of her tonight. Very struggles and hopes and dreams, very self-will and madness all together. Mr. Martin placed his crutches on the ground and, supported by shaking hands, rose up in consternation. Miss Rosenfeld, I am afraid. He looked her steadily in the face and could not finish the sentence. She laughed until the walls rang with clear, piercing sound. It reached the very stage. That's the Beatrice laugh. Do you hear? I have learned it at last. What a misery it was to not be able to laugh before. But I shall do nothing but laugh now in this merry, merry place. Last night a man was killed here, and didn't we all laugh as his spirit was taking its flight? An actor's laugh is an actor's fittest knell. There was no acting in good Mr. Martin's emotion. He turned to Mattie and whispered, Take her home, for pity's sake. She can't get through. Where's Mr. Belton? I, I will try to find him. The old man regarded Stella once more with a look of mingled tenderness and pity, then hobbled in search of the manager. Ophelia called, said Fisk. It was the first time he had ever approached her without a monkey gamble. The impression left by the appalling accident had not yet worn away. Called? What for? What is it? Ophelia, yes, I remember. Maddie, where is the book? I have forgotten every line. Quickly, quickly, the book. I'll fetch it, dear, from your dressing room, replied Maddie. I have a copy, said Fisk. He ran off and returned immediately with the play, found the right place, and gave the open volume into Stella's hands. This was done with a grave, thoughtful kindness, very different from Fisk's usual manner. Stella's thoughts were quickly concentrated on the part before her. As her cue was given, she smiled upon Fisk, returned the book, and walked calmly on to the stage. Not a single syllable of the language was obliterated from her memory. She spoke and moved as Ophelia might have done before her mind became like sweet bells jangled out of tune and harsh. Mr. Martin had summoned Mr. Belton and stood with him at her first entrance regarding her. "'Really, Mr. Martin, you are growing fanciful yourself,' said the latter. "'There is nothing at all wrong with Miss Rosenfeld. "'She is delivering those lines beautifully, "'and she goes through the business of the scene per with perfect propriety. "'If you had seen her in the green room, "'you would have thought that, like poor Ophelia, "'she was divided from herself and her fair judgment,' "'returned Mr. Martin positively. "'She almost frightened me out of my senses.' I tell you, this character has made a fatal impression on her mind. At all events, she is overworked. Nobody can deny that. It's downright cruelty to my thinking. If she were her child or mine, I... Why, Martin, this girl has bewitched you all. 
You're as bad as Mrs. Fairfax, who loves her as though she were her own. But make yourself easy. As soon as Tennant's engagement is over, I will give her a holiday. She will stay two nights more very well. Take care how you lay the last feather on your camel's back, growled Martin as he limped back to the green room. When Stella appeared upon the stage in the fourth act, her hair unbound and disheveled, her eyes dilated until they appeared of the jettiest black and luminous with the peculiar light of insanity. Her white drapery disordered, her movements rapid and uncertain, her personation of the distraught Ophelia became painfully real. As she sang, He is dead and gone, lady, he is dead and gone. At his head a grass-green turf, at his steels a stone. White his shroud as the mountain snow, larded all with sweet flowers, which bewept to the grave did go with true love's showers. The spellbound spectators asked each other, Was ever reason's overthrow so vividly counterfeited? That her madness was but a thrillingly illustrated picture seemed apparent from the correctness with which she delivered the text, and her exit made at the right moment. Mattie awaited her at the wing, with Ophelia's crown of straw. Fisk stood near her, his arms filled with loose flowers. With these, Ophelia is decked before she returns to the stage for her last scene. Stella laughed as the fantastical coronal was placed on her head, and she snatched at the bright flowers from Fisk and laid them in the ample scarf which half enveloped her slender form. Oh, don't, don't, pleaded Mattie. When I hear you laugh so, it makes me feel as though it were all real, as though you were, for all the world, a poor mad thing, like the one in the play. Mad, mad, yes, that's it, cried Stella, tossing the flowers in the air and catching them again in her scarf. Who isn't mad here? We are all mad, all mad, a jolly mad set. And she laughed once more and fastened the reddest blossoms in her floating hair. How now, what noise is that? exclaimed Laertes. Stella recognized her cue, gathered up the scattered flowers, and glided upon the stage. They bore him barefaced on the bier. Hey, no, nanny, hey, nanny, and in his grave rained many a tear, she sang. The audience once more listened entranced. Then came her touching distribution of her floral burden. There's rosemary. That's for remembrance. Pray you, love, remember. And there are pansies. That's for thought. Laertes, a document in madness, thoughts and remembrance fitted. Ophelia, there's fennel for you and columbines. There's rue for you and here's some for me. We may call it herb of grace of Sundays. You may wear your rue with a difference. There's a daisy. I could give you some violets, but they withered all when my father died. They say he made a good end. For Bonnie, sweet Robin is all my joy. Laertes. Thought and affliction, passion, hell itself. She turns to favor and to prettiness. 
Then she broke forth more wildly and plaintively than before, singing, And will he not come again? And will he not come again? No, no, he is dead. Go to thy deathbed. He will never come again. His beard was as white as snow. A flaxen was his pall. He is gone, he is gone. And we may cast away moan, Gramercy on his soul. Kneeling on the ground, she shaped a coffin with her long scarf and strewed it with flowers as she sang. She rose up, repeating the words, Gramercy on his soul, and of all Christian soul, I pray heaven, heaven be with you. They are the last sentences Ophelia speaks. Every last syllable fell from her lips slowly, solemnly. Her arms were extended as though for a worldwide benediction. Ophelia should make her final exit, but Stella stood, immovable, her arms outstretched, her eyes fixed. Mrs. Fairfax gently took her hand to rouse her. She uttered a cry that was a mingling of a laugh and a shriek and fell upon her friend's bosom. "'Gracious heavens!' whispered the actress. "'She does not know what she's doing. "'Mr. Swain, carry her away. "'Help me take her off the stage.' "'Mr. Swain, who enacted Ophelia's brother, "'attempted to raise Stella in his arms, "'but she violently resisted. "'She would allow no one but Mrs. Fairfax to touch her. "'The latter, with some difficulty, bore her from the stage. "'The tragedy proceeded without interval.' The dethronement of a young girl's intellect was too trivial a circumstance in theatrical estimation to interfere with the regular movement of the play, to deprive the public of their purchased amusement. But there were those present who never, in after life, forgot her eloquent, world-embracing attitude, her loving yet stony countenance, and the electrifying tone in which she said, Gramercy on his soul! and of all Christian souls, I pray heaven, heaven be with you. Edwin Percy sat in that audience, his mind convulsed with distracting doubts. The instant Stella was no longer in sight, he hurried to the stage door and entreated admission of the theatrical cerebus. It was against rules to enter, Percy pleaded, threatened, offered a large bribe, but the doorkeeper was inexorable. Disregarding of orders in Mr. Belton's establishment was a forfeiture of situation. Meanwhile, Stella was conveyed to her dressing room by Mrs. Fairfax and Mattie. The former was forced to return to the stage in a few moments to recount the hapless Ophelia's watery end. The self-control acquired by years of discipline hardly sufficed the dismayed actress to go through the scene without betraying more emotion than befitted Hamlet's mother at the untimely death of the maiden whom she thought to welcome as her son's bride. When Mrs. Fairfax returned to Stella, she found her talking in a wild strain. The horrors of the previous night were reenacted in the young girl's imagination. Hark! Do you hear the heavy crash? she muttered. See, his brains are quite dashed out. Look how the blood gushes. It is spouted up to Perdita's bosom, and Floy's hands are all daubs. Must she play Juliet after that? Was it she or I? And then she sang, 
they bore him barefaced on the bier but suddenly stopped no they won't carry him barefaced it would be too horrible a sight strew the flowers over him hide him hide his mangled head from the staring crowd and she took off the flowers that were fastened about her dress and flung them with a frantic gesture it was not possible to change her attire nor would she permit the crown of straw to be removed nor her loosened tresses to be gathered and bound mr belton consulted with miss fairfax and the almost broken-hearted mattie it was necessary that the young girl should be conveyed to her home without delay and medical attendance summoned mr belton seized an opportunity when stella sank back exhausted and powerless and bore her down the stairs mrs fairfax longed to accompany her at home but she was compelled to appear on the stage in the fifth act if mrs rosenfeld will permit me i will come to you as soon as the play is over she said to mattie stella seems to recognize me i may be of assistance as mr belton placed his unresisting burden in the carriage mr percy who stood at the stage door grasped mattie's arm merciful powers what has happened she is not ill she is not dying no no replied mattie soothingly for his terrified manner touched her accessible heart but she no longer knows us this horrible life has been too much for her let me go with you she will know me stella stella he murmured leaping into the carriage but stella gave no sign of recognition though she was now sitting quite erect beside mr belton when they reached her residence she seemed able to walk percy had alighted from the carriage first and received her as she descended she took his arm mechanically preceded by mattie and followed by mr belton they entered the house mrs rosenfeld rose in surprise but not in alarm mr belton introduced himself she saluted the gentleman courteously then turned to stella you have come home in your ophelia dress to show it to me she exclaimed with a gratified air how very picturesque i am much obliged to you gentlemen for accompanying her mattie hid her face in her apron mr belton bent his eyes sorrowfully on the ground mr percy looked the very incarnation of mute despair stella stood vacantly gazing into the distance stella dear why do you stand there how strangely you look stella my child why don't you answer me mattie what ails her what have they done to her hush hush whispered the young girl and the muscles a moment so rigid so now relaxed he's dead quite dead his brain crushed in why am i lying alive in juliet's tomb while he is waiting for a grave here's one ready-made lay him here mrs rosenfeld turned towards the perturbed manager is that her part she is rehearsing i have heard her rehearse often but not in this manner why does she not notice any one what ails her she's not not oh god not mad tell me my child is not mad give me the dress of your medical attendant madam that i may go for him myself her brain has been overtasked no doubt rest and a physician's care can restore her the mother stupefied by the sudden shock was incapable of giving the desired direction fortunately it was remembered by mattie mr belton wrote down the street and the number and departed 
Mrs. Rosenfeld lavished upon her daughter the most tender epithets, but words of endearment bore not their healing sweetness to her wandering mind. Mr. Percy had gently placed her in a chair. She had removed her straw garland and was tearing it into bits. She offered him a fragment, repeating, "'There's rue for you, and here's some for me.' He clasped the sad token to his breast and gazed upon her as though his tortured soul would rush through his eyes, then turned to the afflicted mother and asked, "'Is there nothing, madam, I can do?' my son send for my son write to him by tonight's post these incidents occurred before the telegraph was in operation percy almost regretted his question to comply with mrs rosenfeld's wish he would be forced to leave stella he bent over her whispering her name and imploring her to bestow upon him one word one look mrs rosenfeld noticed that he lingered and said you want his address ernest rosenfeld New York will reach him. Tell him, prepare him for this blow. Do not lose time. Write at once. Mr. Percy was forced to take his leave. Mrs. Rosenfeld and Mattie were kneeling on either side of Stella's chair when Mrs. Fairfax entered. At the sound of her voice, the young girl looked up and stretched out her hand. You are staying with me. You are so good. You will not leave me behind in this dark tomb alone. Hold fast my hand. Don't draw it away. I know the cue, and will loosen it at the right moment. The combat is not over yet. Paris is not dead. Romeo will not burst open the doors until then. She clung eagerly to Mrs. Fairfax, who, after many attempts, succeeded in luring her into her mother's chamber before the physician arrived. Brain fever, produced by injudicious mental stimulus, pronounced the man of science, after examining his patient attentively. The most absolute quiet is necessary for her recovery. But neither quiet nor medicine seemed likely to effect that promised restoration. For three days she lay wildly raving and recognized no one. Now she had managed herself triumphing on the stage, floral showers falling around her, and the plaudits of a delighted multitude ringing in her ears, now failing in some grand, laborious part, overwhelmed with shame and confusion, now subjected to Miss Doran's merciless persecutions, now witnessing again the appalling death of the captain of the supernumeraries. Mrs. Fairfax was constantly by her couch. It was marvelous how the actress could discharge her morning and evening duties at the theater, and yet watch beside Stella, night after night, with undiminished strength. Mrs. Fairfax had never experienced the pangs and joys of maternity, but her heart adopted this young girl almost from the moment when, at rehearsal, her arm enfolded that trembling form. Mr. Percy had, every day, many brief interviews with Mattie. The shattering of Stella's intellect had raised from its dream-laid foundation and dashed to atoms his mansion built of many hopes. Ernest, apprised of his sister's perilous illness, obtained leave of absence for a few days and arrived in Boston on Sunday morning. His presence awakened no harmonious chord in Stella's unstrung mind. As he sat by her couch, in tearless anguish, he could not help saying to Mrs. Fairfax, I foresaw this. I dreaded the effect of this turbulent existence upon her, but she would not heed my counsel. 
God grant that she may listen to it better when she recovers. When she recovers, Mrs. Fairfax sadly repeated to herself, when, alas, alas. The next evening, towards sunset, about the hour that, one fortnight before, the novice had been robed in her Virginia attire, prepared to be ushered upon her perilous stage life, the watchers noticed a decided change in their beloved invalid. She slept calmly for the first time during her illness. The mother and son were seated near the head of the bed, Mrs. Fairfax a short distance from them. Mattie stood at the foot, but not alone. She had hearkened to Perdita's earnest pleadings, and allowed the sorrowing girl to come gaze once more upon the lovely features of her almost worshipped friend. Only a few whispered words were spoken, but those breathed of hope. Stella lay as white and still as sculptured marble. The arms that had been incessantly tossed about were folded on her breast. The features, so constantly distorted, had settled into a holy calm. The burning glow on her cheek had faded out, and the labored breath was now lightly drawn. She moved feebly, then, with a deep sigh, opened her eyes. The glittering light, the vacant expression, the wild stare had gone from them. My mother! Thank God, thank God, murmured Mrs. Roosevelt, sinking upon her knees. She knows me. She will recover. Ernest, is that you? How came you here? I was rash. I did not heed you. If I can but prove to you how much I... But it's too late. Who is that by you? My friend, my kind friend. Kind to everyone, but kindest of all to the headstrong novice. All that could be done to help her, to smooth her rough path, you did. Mattie pressed forward, but Perdita shrank back behind the curtains. My own faithful, uncomplaining Mattie, how I have made you suffer, God bless you. Don't forget that I have loved you always. You were so patient, so devoted. Brother, take good care of my Mattie. A low sound of weeping now issued from one at the foot of the bed, and the curtains shook. Who is that? Who moves the curtains? Is it? Can it be? And her face becomes suddenly effulgent with the hope which her tongue refused to betray. Those words Perdita issued from her concealment and bathed the outstretched hand of her friend with the dewy messengers of love and gratitude sent from her heart. What, Perdita? You? It was not of you of whom I was thinking, and yet I am glad you are here. Brother, this orphan and her poor brother, I hoped, but cannot now. I, I thought to help them. You will? And Mattie, you will never forsake them. My memory on the stage, let it be embalmed by one, this one good deed. There is something else I want to say, but I cannot speak it someone else. Lift me up. I'm stifling. The terrified Ernest raised and supported her. She looked imploringly into his face, struggled to speak, but her lips moved without producing a sound. Her eyes rested with a look of love unutterable upon every countenance in turn. Fainter and fainter grew her breathing. More and more glassy became her distended orbs and now the heavy lids drooped slowly over them. 
Never more would those eyes be dazzled by the glare of stage lights. Never more would that stilled heart swell or sink at the world's applause or blame. The meteor, which flashed its resplendent luster for a moment athwart the dramatic horizon, moved in a heavenlier sphere. Ernest led his mother from the bed of death to Stella's unoccupied chamber. A volume of Shakespeare lay open upon the table. The hand, now lifeless, had marked those passages which the young girl loved best. Ernest pointed out this book to his mother. In the violence of her grief, she would have pushed it aside, as though it had some conscious instrumentality in her sorrow. But her son gently prevented the action and pointed out the unclosed page which bore the trace of Stella's pencil. A voice from the unseen world seemed to whisper in the ears of the mourners, as, through their blinding tears, they perused the inspired lines. Heaven and yourself had part in this fair maid, now heaven hath all, and all the better it is for the maid. Your part in her you could not keep from death, but heaven keeps his part in eternal life. The most you sought was her promotion, and t'was your heaven she should have advanced. And weep ye now, seeing she is advanced above the clouds as high as heaven itself? Oh, in this love you love your child so ill, that you run mad, seeing that she is well. End of Stella by Anna Cora Mollett. End of section nine.